You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Jessica Campbell. Jessica's new book for Koyama is Hot or Not, 20th Century Male Artists. And I have to, I'm wondering, is this the first comic graphic novel that has a scratch-away cover? I think it like, is. Like Scratch and Wins type yeah. scratch-away? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is, because as soon as I came up with the idea, I thought, uh, I've never seen this on a book before, and looked it up, and I... I I saw there were a couple of books that had done it before, but no comics, as far as I know. Um, the idea kind of came from a, a an erotic greeting card that I saw when I was a kid and was sc- traumatized by, where you scratched a man's underwear off. Um, uh, but yeah, I've never seen it on a book. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I feel like for some people, you'll get a prize as you scratch it away, like the greeting card. Or it might not be what people want to see, uh, depending on what you're looking for. Um, now, I was read all your stuff and kind of doing a lot of thoughts about it. And it's the, one of the things I was thinking about is like, you're someone who's been involved in comics for, for quite a while, mm-hmm. um, working at Drawn and Quarterly. Um, for a number of years, um, during their big, I guess that's kind of like the big change time at Drawn Quarterly too, where it went from more boutique to the yeah. bigger. I don't know if you see. It yeah, that I way. guess I don't. It's so hard. I think I feel like um, so close to it that it's hard for me to really see the change. I mean, I guess when I started working there, there were like four employees, and then I was interning and so and then now I don't I was just visiting and it seemed like they had like a lot they had a lot of people (laughs) working there (laughs) um so you've been around comics um but you're coming at this um not from like the traditional comics direction Mm -hmm. like I don't feel like you know with a lot of folks we talk about what's your influence and stuff Uh and it's I don't think it's going to be the same right yeah it wasn't like a collector or nerd kind of <laughs> I was a nerd probably but um, uh, yeah I think I came from it from a different angle uh, I, though I know you know you have talked to Jason Lutz before he's someone whose interview I've listened to and he also he worked at Fantagraphics when he was a young man um, I don't know if he was there quite as long as I was at Drawn and Quarterly but uh, there are you know a couple of people but I think it's unusual I mean, I don't know that many other people who worked in publishing and then moved into the creating side of things. There's a lot of people that work for Fantagraphics because they That's basically, true. they pay very little. <laughs> um, and if you like showed up at Gary's house and you're hungry, he'd throw you into the warehouse, I think. <laughs> Well, and Jason Miles is a great artist, and Eric Reynolds, too. So, yeah, that's true. And actually, you know, at D&Q, Tom Devlin. But Tom Devlin and Eric Reynolds, I feel like, or maybe Tom Moore was doing maybe more comics before he started working at Drawn and Quarterly. And Has he done comics in the last I don't. Years? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but then Chris Oliveros, you Did know, Chris Oliveros kind of has stepped down so that he can focus on his really fantastic cartooning so the envelope manufacturer yeah he's doing a new book now too maybe it's a secret i don't know (laughs) (laughs) the scoop has been revealed yeah (laughs) um so 
doing an internship at John Curley, what kind of brought you into there? You were doing your BFA at Concordia? Yes, correct. So I had I grew up in Victoria, very close to here. We were just talking about it. And uh, when I was there, I worked in bookstores. I worked for a bookstore uh, called Monroe's there. Uh, you're probably familiar. And I, were, I was really interested in comics, uh, liked reading them, and sort of, you know, was an assistant buyer for the comics oh, section okay. there and the art section. And, uh, and then moved to Montreal to do my BFA at Concordia University in painting and drawing and worked in a bookstore uh, in Montreal. And then I was on you know back home for the summer my first summer freshman year uh, of my first year and some friend was like oh you know drawn in quarterlies in Montreal you should go work for them Uh, and then I was like oh my god I'd never thought about that before and so as soon as I got back I wrote Peggy an email um, asking or publicity an email asking for an internship and uh, and yeah it kind of went from there did you have aspirations at all at that point of doing comics? Or, well, uh-uh. like, I'm curious how that works yeah. with what you're doing with your BFA. Well, yeah, I was really, like, strictly painting kind of traditional oil painting in my undergraduate degree. I always, I loved comics. I loved reading and literature, and I loved fine art. And then, you know, when I came into comics kind of in my, I got, you know, I read Archie and whatever when I was a kid, but when I got reintroduced to like graphic novels or literary comics uh, as a teenager, I was really excited. Uh, you know, I think in my mind at that point, it was like this merging of visual art and literature, which I, I see it kind of differently than that now. Mm-hmm. Um, but that idea was really exciting to me that it could take these two things that I loved so much and merge them together. Uh, but I, you know, while I was studying, I really was making strictly oil paintings And I think working at Drawn and Quarterly, I was surrounded by these cartoonists who I think are, you know, the best living cartoonists or some of the best Mm -hmm. living cartoonists. And it was intimidating to me. The idea of making my own comics were really intimidating to me. So I did, you know, try a little bit very secretively, made some like diary comics that I have never shown anyone and that are terrible, (laughs) really terrible. Uh, And then it wasn't until I was leaving that I, uh, Chuck Forsman, um, the who does Revenger now and um, uh, uh, the oily comics yeah, king. the oily comics king he he reached out to me asking if I wanted to do an oily at some point and originally he had proposed he was like you know you're funny uh, you, you make these funny Facebook posts you could just write something and I you know someone else could draw it you don't even have to draw it and I and I was like no I, I I'd like to do it I'd like to draw my own comic that sounds great mm-hmm. and so it kind of the first one that I did with him was published the same week that I quit Drawn in Quarterly. Oh, wow. So my going away party was the launch for this mini comic. And that was the... That uh, was sincere my sincerest apologies, apologies, which is not really even a comic. It's more of like a zine with some illustrations. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about um, with all the all that early work, especially, mm-hmm. um, and, and less with the, the Hot or Not, is... Um, the way your work was presenting a lot of it was just singular page Mm -hmm. and that really made me think of like kind of that fine art kind of area like uh jerry moriarty his work is very much it's got to be a singular page he's trying to do a gag on a giant painting right (laughs) (laughs) uh and i think ben jones is more recent stuff he's been doing like the singular page thing yeah yeah is that like something particular in mind for you 
Yeah. Um, well, I love Jerry Moriarty and Ben Jones. Um, uh, well, I mean, I think a lot of that earlier work, just trying to think, I mean, they were kind of like singular sentiments. I mean, it's more a zini. It's like, I think, you know, fine art, like a painting, you look at a painting, uh, you spend a lot of time looking at a singular image and trying to pull out uh, important aspects of it versus comics where you read it, uh, you know, the images operate kind of more like glyphs or, or like text and you're supposed to kind of be able to read them quite quickly and I now I think I'm more in that mindset when I'm making comics but when I started out I was you know since I was coming from this fine art background that was a lot more intuitive mm -hmm. to me to yeah work in singular images now one of your I think it was from your BFA there mm -hmm. uh, was the Mile End, the giant oh, drawing. You yeah. did, was that like your final? No, I did that when I was in my MFA. Um, oh, okay. So that was, Sorry. but that was a big. No, that's okay. It was a big. Um, it's a big drawing that's like uh, you know a map of part of Mile of Mile End, a neighborhood in Montreal where there's a character kind of walking through it and talking to himself about gentrification um, and and it was based on uh, well I was looking at a lot of things so going at the, to the School of the Art Institute the museum has all of these really amazing um, early Renaissance paintings or not a lot but they have some uh, and there's this one painter in particular Giovanni de Paolo who has a suite of paintings about John the Baptist that are in this kind of tilted sort of isometric perspective so I was looking at those and then thinking about you know like Chris Ware's isometric perspective and The Sims, uh, but then also like I think the kind of biggest influence on that were the, the family circus comics where it's like Billy and the map of yeah. you know the town. When I was a kid, I had one of those that I had cut out of the newspaper, and I remember looking at it and thinking like I don't get what is funny about this, like I don't get the gag, and I thought. Well, I'm probably just too young to understand it, so I folded it up and I put it in a desk drawer. And then every year, I would open the desk drawer and unfold it and say, like, maybe I'll be old enough this year to understand the gag. And then one day, I realized, like, oh, there's there's no joke. It's just, I mean, it's just like kids. Yeah, That's, aren't they wacky? No, yeah, they're wacky. They're walking around in weird directions. I like that idea of like hoping something gets funny eventually. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like no, I'll give it up on this. Yeah. Now, you also do stand-up as well. Yeah. You know, a little, you <laughs> yeah. skirt with it. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in stand-up. I did a little bit. Some friends of mine in Montreal were kind of doing it. And then since being in Chicago, I've done it a few times. Um, uh, Amy Lockhart, the, the artist, the animator, she just moved down there. And so we kind of... Uh, run a very uh, irregular comedy night out of her uh, studio um, in her house. Uh, so that's happened a couple of times. But yeah, I'm interested in it. A lot of the comedy that I've done has kind of taken the guise of me speaking and then showing images at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that sincere, my sincerest apologies zine... Or even, you know, the hot or not, hot, the way hot or not is structured is kind of so that I could read the text and show an image at the same time. Um, yeah, and it's this kind of performative Are you going to be doing thing. that at Lucky's tonight? No, at Lucky's I'm just going to, I'm going to be signing tonight, yeah. We talked about it, but then 
Gabe was like, well, I don't, yeah, I don't know where we could project it. And there, we were kind of struggling to come up with a system that would work. And so we just decided, we'll just do a launch. It's a tight space. Yeah. Projections, and usually it's like everyone's sitting on the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't want to sit on a floor in Vancouver in November. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't want to make my parents sit on the floor. <laughs> um, yeah, I saw the, the one video you had posted on your blog of you doing a thing. Um I guess about what you leave behind when you died. Oh yeah, yeah, that was for Brain Frame, which was a performative comics reading series that happened in Chicago, put on by Lyra Hill. Um, yeah, and it's sort of like a it's a fictitious police report about some woman with my same name and uh, emptying out the contents of her like hoarder house. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> Um, another thing I was looking at is you were thinking of doing a Kenny Rogers comic? Oh, yeah. I did do about four panels of that comic. I wrote, actually what happened is that I, I wrote um, an erotic story about Kenny Rogers that was prose. Uh, and initially I'd planned on turning it into a comic, but it kind of just stayed as a prose story. Um, uh, I wouldn't, I mean, I would consider turning into a comic one day. I also have this idea, I had a Leonard Cohen comic idea kind of bouncing around in my head, um, which feels sad uh, now. Too timely. Yeah, too timely, yeah. I mean, it was a couple of years ago that I was working on it, but it was kind of like an, an erotic, uh, erotic comic. Uh, so I think I might wait a couple of years at least before I do that. Leonard Cohen slash fiction. Basically, yeah, Leonard Cohen <laughs> slash fiction. Yeah, Sorry. exactly. Yeah, it was about the song Jazz Police. That was my favorite Leonard Cohen song. <laughs> um, now, you moved to Chicago to do your MFA. Um, was it also painting and drawing, or do you have something specific in mind you really wanted to focus on at that point? Uh, that might have been useful, but no. I just went for general painting and drawing. I went, I mean, I went into it making these kind of oil paintings of interior spaces of houses so that was kind of what I started doing there and then yeah I don't know I mean uh, I, I suppose every school is kind of different but what happened for me is that like my the work I was making sort of exploded so I was like I'm you know I'm gonna do a comedy performance and I'm going to make a painting and then I'm going to make this book and then I'm going to paint the floor and ceiling of my studio so it looks like wood grain and I kind of like uh, went a little off the walls while I was in school. But I, what happened with that was that I came out making, like, I have a kind of uh, broader set of, mm. of, like, abilities now, and I've been able to kind of integrate different modes of working and di seemingly divergent interests into a hopefully sort of cohesive art-making practice. Oh, I really like uh, looking at what's kind of come out um, because you're it all looks like your work, like it all has like the similar aesthetic, but you're doing a lot of different mediums. You're doing like textile pieces, yeah. <laughs> which is really interesting to me. Like that's very off from from painting. Yeah. Yeah, the textile pieces, um, I've been making these pieces where I cut up bath mats and piece them together to make imagery and, and they hang on the walls like painting. So they kind of look like latch hook rugs when you see them in person but they're bath mats um and uh uh yeah that's been really interesting that sort of started as something that was on the floor that was uh you know a support 
or you know kind of ancillary to like 2d painting and drawing work on the walls and then it flipped so now the rugs are on the hanging on the walls um i yeah i mean i don't know i've just been kind of like following my nose a little bit which was partially due probably to graduate school in that they were you know there's a a lot of demand that like you explain yourself or, like why did you do this well what are you thinking about this like well that you know that answer doesn't correlate with what you've done and um I don't know that that necessarily made me better at defending my points but it kind of made me care less you know I'm like who cares like yeah. I, I feel like doing this I'm just gonna do it and see what happens yeah. uh so that's been that's been good it's almost like a catharsis in that yeah, right. It feels um, like a big relief to just kind of follow follow your nose. Um, did you have to do like a big thesis as well, or just... for uh, for the School of the Art Institute? It's an enormous university, or I mean, it's you know relative to other universities, it's quite small. But for an art school, it's very big. So there were you know my graduating MFA class was like two hundred students oh, wow. or something like that. Yeah. And and then we were in there's a thesis exhibition across all departments that had like a hundred and something students in it. So each of us had a designated amount of space and we could put whatever work we wanted to in there. Um uh so I put in three pieces, a painting and um some other there was a painting that was wearing pants and a shirt and then a big sculpted hand. Um and it was uh, you know, it feels kind of like not really that much pressure because you've been painting and making work for two years, so yeah. you should be able to like put grab something from the studio to hang up there. I think it's quite different from probably other programs where there's a much more intensive thesis. You're you're happy and comfortable with your work to the point like this is. Yeah. Where it's at. Yeah, it felt. I mean, you know, uh, I the work that I showed, I felt like confident in at the time um uh so i know some of my peers kind of like barricaded themselves in their studios with like you know packs of cigarettes and and like i don't know cocaine or something and didn't sleep for a week straight and were kind of like trying to embody the like tortured male genius artist uh making a painting but suffering for the suffering yeah, yeah suffering for their work but i didn't feel that way <laughs> <laughs> I remember when my girlfriend did her um, her final thing for her BFA, mm -hmm. and it was like all this stress leading up to it. And then when she did it, it was like, oh, it was like yeah, what one person on the panel just did not get it. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. Yeah, there were like lots of peaks of stress uh, during. I don't know during during school, but it, by the end, I was sort of. I don't know. I felt like I, I just had to trust the work that I was making because when I was like too anxious about what the you know faculty, I, I like the faculty there quite a lot, um, but I, when I was too anxious about it, I'd make weaker work yeah. if I was trying to predict what people wanted to see or whatever. It was a bad mode of working. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Less natural. Um, so I guess Hot or Not, I'm going to presume, came out of this experience of working around the tortured male yeah. <laughs> artists who, who were trying to evoke, you know, someone who died a hundred years ago yeah. or live this life, this bohemian life. And... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think there's this real romanticization of the, of the really fucked up, uh, tortured male genius for sure that I was reacting to a little bit. I mean, I think, you know, when I was younger, I think I sort of fetishized that idea too of like, 
living in some unheated attic and like you know starving and uh, spending your money on paint instead of food or something like that um I don't feel that way any longer um uh yeah I mean it did come out of that I think you know part of the nature of the School of the Art Institute is that you're going into the museum all of the time um and uh so you're kind of confronted with a lot of the works that I put into this book, um, and also just with the fact that the museum is, you know, predominantly populated by men, and that these kind of canonical, like, important the academic men, yeah, institutional, yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah. So that is so it's certainly like a reflection um, uh, of that experience. Uh, one thing I remember my girlfriend telling me about how when she was in art school, when doing art history. All the photos of women's art always mm-hmm. had the artist with the work. Oh, really? Yeah. And and I'm wondering if that was like kind of part of this narrative of like the women's art's judged upon the women being attached yeah. to the work. At least historically, I don't know if it's mm-hmm. necessarily the same predominant now. Hopefully, we're doing a little better. Yeah. <laughs> in that aspect, but like traditionally and historically, it's. Well, I think what happens is that when when teaching art history or when speaking about art history, and certainly I agree with you that this is changing, but I, it's still some of the cases that we see, like the you know white straight male artist is sort of neutral, you know, where his biography is like not the most unless he's really weird, like he's like Voyard and lives with his mom his whole life or something like that. You know, you kind of see him as like. Uh, his biography is secondary to the work that he's produced. The work is just kind of like an expression of this like internal genius. But then when you look at, you know, uh, I mean like Emily Carr or something like that, for instance, one of our, you know, local uh, famous artists, her biography and the way she looked and the fact that she was this kind of recluse and had all these animals and was like, you know, not allowed to join the group of seven because she was a woman and all of these things like become really... um, uh, enmeshed in with the way that we talk about her work, yeah. um, and I and I think that's true of a lot of other people. That it's not necessarily just how they look, how a woman looks, or how a person of color looks, but it's their biographies that become kind of intertwined with the narrative of the work in a way that doesn't happen um, to like European dudes. Yeah, or with the European dudes, it's kind of a celebration of reinforcing the work. Yeah, yeah, could be. Um. Tell me about the selection of the of the dudes. <laughs> How uh, do you choose your dudes? Yeah. <laughs> Good question. Well, I mean, there I gave myself a couple of criteria. Um, so one, they had to be uh, artists of the twentieth century. So, and I wanted to work with dead artists uh, specifically. I didn't want to deal with anyone who was alive. Um, uh, and I wanted them to be, for the most part, kind of straight white. Uh, men, um, though some of them I think maybe weren't straight, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, uh, but, you know, basically that's the criteria. And then I wanted them to be canonical artists as well, so kind of, you know, they have these uh, really well-known works, that, and they're they're kind of, you know, famous enough that you could just say their last names, and, and mm-hmm. many people would be familiar with them. And so those are the kind of, like, uh, constraints that I gave myself and then specifically I wanted 
you know, a good section of Canadian artists. I wanted to represent the motherland in, in <laughs> the book. And then I was kind of picking paintings often that I really loved or thought would be kind of, uh, you know, look interesting if they were drawn in black and white. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was roughly it. And they're all painters, too. Uh, well, you know what, they aren't all painters. There's uh, Moore, um, Henry Moore is a sculptor, and uh, Alexander Calder is in there, but then I think the rest are painters, I'm pretty sure. Mostly painters. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you uh, were putting together the, the artists, um, were you trying to look for like iconic pieces to represent when you're doing the book, like with the Mondrians? Yeah. Iconic. But Mondrian, I feel like, has a lot of iconic... I mean, they're all kind of the same painting, right? Yeah. I mean, they're not the same, but, you know, basically. Uh, uh, how did I pick the paintings? Well, um, no, I mean, it varied a little bit. A lot of it had to do with what I felt like drawing. You know, like the Matisse piece, I picked one of the paper cutouts to draw um, because that's what I felt like drawing, and I... But I think I could have picked, like, a more iconic painting if I'd picked, like, The Red Room or, you know, these other paintings that are better known by Matisse. Um, uh, so a lot of it had to do with what I felt like drawing. Uh, and then some of it had to do with paintings I see a lot of and am familiar with, like the... Um, uh, oh, I'm trying to think now. Like, the, well, the Gauguin painting is, like, is like really, really um, iconic and and familiar. Um, Baltus, that Baltus painting, yeah. the one I picked is in the Art Institute, I'm pretty sure, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, which one I drew. Um, um, so that's kind of part of it, too. It's a creepy painting. Yeah, it's, it's a creepy it's... painting. I picked Barnett Newman's Voice of Fire, though those paintings also kind of all look really similar. But Voice of Fire is like, you know, this super contentious painting in Canadian history. He's an American, but... Do you know the story about Voice of Fire? Canada bought it after um, uh, Expo, the Expo in Montreal. Um, it was uh, on display in the American Pavilion. It was this enormous painting, and they paid like a couple million dollars for I think it. I remember this. Yeah, and it then people like, lost their minds because they're yeah. like, "This is this is the stupidest painting I've ever seen." And it got to the point that a town in Ontario, I think, said, "We can make this painting ourselves," um, and so they got the whole town together and like laid a canvas out on the ground and tried to recreate Voice of Fire to prove that it was worthless. And of course they couldn't do it exactly. <laughs> but um, so yeah, that <laughs> that's another little Canadian hat tip in there. I love how that kind of goes away the against the Canadian polite stereotype. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're polite, we're polite as long as it doesn't cost us too much. Yeah. <laughs> and if it's not, not American. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, have you had any response from uh, non-comic community with this mm. book? Yeah, I mean, there are people in the uh, oh, that's okay. um, in the art world who I think have been a little bit more responsive to it because it's uh, funny to them. And I think especially, you know, as much as these are canonical artists, I'm sure, like, there are a lot of people who aren't familiar with all of them, either, you know, in the States where they're not familiar with the Canadian artists or if you're not from the fine arts world, some of them might not be familiar to you. So mm -hmm. it is kind of like um, pandering to like a fine art audience. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of who else I've heard from. Um, I do know it was reviewed or it was previewed on the Onion AV Club 
but I think those guys are probably all kind of really intense comics people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but some there was some criticism. I unfortunately read the comments thread, uh, oh, and I don't know. I didn't. I don't know. Like this is new to me, um, having to avoid the comments. Uh, and there were like <laughs> the best were the you know a lot of people were like this book is stupid. This person's an idiot. Um, but but there was one guy who was like uh, Mondrian wasn't even hot, and like listed all these reasons why Mondrian wasn't hot. And it was amazing. It was my favorite criticism. I was like, yes, keep going. I feel like you should have, like, info sessions with folks to yeah. kind of, like, discuss the <laughs> No, but the point is that this is not, uh, this is not a democracy. This is, I'm, I'm the, you know, I'm yeah. the dictator of this book. I get to, I, it's my say is final. <laughs> Did you have folks you wanted to put in there, but you kept out? Uh, well... I think, you know, I, I could have done a lot more. Recently, I had an interview, and I, um, for the interview, I did Tom Thompson and um, Alex Colville, because um, they specifically asked, why didn't you include them? And I was like, oh, sure, I'll, I'll do them. Um, both not, oh, no, 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 they both were hot. They both were hot, surprisingly, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do feel like that this kind of formula, I could keep doing it forever. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Just like a gallery, just like, yeah. we need a hot or not for our, yeah. our collection. Yeah. <laughs> just go to the Vancouver Art Gallery. Yeah, right. Their collection. Um, so what is the criteria for a hot artist or a not artist? Oh, I don't, you know, uh, I don't, it's not particularly scientific. It's just based on my personal feelings. Though I do feel like my feelings are objective fact uh, so just to be clear um uh yeah i don't know i mean i like all kinds of different men uh so it really could be any kind of person I think. do you have any artists that you like changed opinion on as you like did more research into the book oh yeah like someone just like oh no yeah i mean i think you know like i i, I think i called saul lewitt a knot and then Aaron was looking at it and he was like why is all he looks handsome to me and I was like yeah I mean he I, I probably would have been into him I don't know but I gotta make a choice here <laughs> you gotta draw the line somewhere yeah <laughs> now you're before we started you mentioned um you're in Chicago mm-hmm. and I was saying you're gonna be at cake yeah next year and you said you've been you're involved with the Oh yeah, I've been helping the organize them with with them a little bit but I'm a uh I'm a very bad organizer because I'm, I mean, I think everyone who does it is really busy. Of course, it's like a volunteer thing and most of the people have jobs and or kids and or, you know, art practices and whatever. So, uh, but I keep flaking out on the meetings or I'll have other commitments. Um, so I, I feel a little guilty even saying that I'm an organizer, but uh, I am. I help with the programming, especially last year I did. And again, I will this year. Um, so the panel discussions and stuff like okay. that. Uh, and I'm helping to bring Trina Robbins to Chicago for cake in the School of the Art Institute. They're going to do a joint lecture in March, um, uh, that we'll be announcing at some point when the details are completely confirmed. Um, so I'm doing that kind of stuff, uh, which is great. I mean, cake is awesome. It's mm-hmm. such a great show and the people who organize it are fantastic and they really, you know, are trying to emphasize like, 
getting a diverse crowd of creators, like more, you know, creators of color and um, queer creators. And that's really amazing and important to me. And so it's, I, I mean, I think it's such a great show. It's, it's really neat. Like the Chicago cartooning seems really understated to me because hmm. like I find out about more folks over there and it's yeah. like, it's such a huge group yeah amazing folks it's crazy i mean chris ware lives there and ivan brunetti but then there's also you know i'm married to aaron renier a cartoonist and then there's um laura park is there lily caray just moved like three weeks ago but she was there for the past 10 years and uh tons and tons of cartoonists gabby schultz just moved but he was there Edie fake used to be there i don't know i mean i guess some people are moving yeah. now but people gabby's keep coming in a van somewhere. gabby's living in a van <laughs> <laughs> yeah who knows where gabby's living <laughs> that's my favorite thing right now yeah so he was he told me because we'd been sort of commiserating about you know chicago at some point though i've come around to it more but he was like yeah, I don't know where to move. I don't know where to move. And eventually he was just like, well, I still don't know where to move, but I'm going to give up my apartment and my job and just hop in a van. <laughs> he he must have a hard time right now, too, because he's so... Politics is all he thinks about all the time, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, it's brutal down there. It's like, I can't... I'm. It's been nice coming up here, though it's kind of unfair, I guess, to extricate myself from the situation, but it is... I have never felt this horrible uh and i mean it's not all about me but um you know just like it's a really really scary time to live there uh just thinking about like how many people's rights are going to be stripped away and you know like my you know uh, today i was looking through facebook and one of my friends was like who is like chinese canadian he was saying he was walking around in new york today and got called a racial slur for like the first time he could remember and people there you know these instances of like churches being burned and swastikas being spray painted all over the place and women's hijabs being ripped off and it's like just this like hatred and cruelty is kind of really ramped up and it's uh it feels desperate like it's hard to explain how miserable and horrible it is right now um Hopefully Gabby's been avoiding some of that in the van. <laughs> Maybe he's, like, completely off-grid. And that's yeah. what I can hope. He just yeah, doesn't yeah. have the internet. <laughs> yeah. He's just, like, sitting in a McDonald's parking lot somewhere. Yeah, probably making kombucha or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now that makes me feel old. Um, what, kombucha? Yeah, I've, I just never got it. I never oh, yeah, it. I'm not, I don't know, I don't, I don't drink it. Right, but I mean, it seems it's pretty. It's healthy for you, all that bacteria. I've heard. Aaron really wants to start making it in our house, but I don't. I mean, our house is really messy all the time, and I don't want to start fermenting things in there until we can keep it a little cleaner. That's been my rule, but it's like we never get there. I don't know. He's probably yeah, making yeah. it now that I'm out of town for the week. You're gonna come back with this <laughs> yeah. giant jar on your counter. Yeah. It's the mother. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now you and Aaron, you guys did a play together? Yeah, so we did a comic, I should have sent it to you, I totally forgot, <laughs> but we did a comic a, a few years ago, um, we had pitched this, like, TV cartoon, Aaron had been asked to pitch some cartoon short, and we pitched this do- murder mystery, kind of like a murder she wrote, but everyone uh, was a dog, um, 
and it got rejected, <laughs> uh, understandably, because we don't understand how those things work. It was supposed to be seven minutes long, and we wrote something that was like half an hour long. Uh, and so then we turned it into a comic. Uh, it's called Sylvia Leads, The Colonel Throws a Ball. And then, and then a year later, we were asked again by Brain Frame, that performative comics reading series, uh, it was going to be their last Brain Frame, and they, uh, Lyra reached out to us to ask if we'd want to do something for the final iteration, and it was going to be, ha it happened at this really beautiful theater, and it was going to be kind of this big to-do, so we decided to turn the comic into a play, and we got 17 a actors, they were mostly cartoonists and non-actors, and I think one person who I know who had, you know, real acting training. Uh, and we made these paper mache dog heads and got costumes for everyone. And we designed a set and, uh, you know, got all these props and put on a, put on the play. It was a lot of work. And it was also yeah. funny when I started it out, you know, we were like, who needs a prop master? Who needs a stage manager? Who needs a director? Like, we can just do all that ourselves. And at the end of the play, I was like, now I understand why those different positions exist and why one person doesn't do all those things because it was, it was like uh, a lot of work. Yes. <laughs> yeah, a lot of work for what amounted to a sort of bad high school play. <laughs> it was fun. I kind of love that it exists, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's such a weird, ridiculous thing. Just everyone on stage with these giant... Yeah, yeah, it was fun, and then you know I wish we could have done it more than one night too. It would have been, would have been nice to do it a couple of times. I'm really interested in that though. The artist designed theater sets, and you know David Hockney did one, and uh, there was um, uh, Roger Brown, this painter Roger Brown, who I've been doing some work with at my day job. He designed some theater sets, and I think. Wasn't there like a Ben Catcher opera at some point? There probably was. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like Ben. I, mean, I met Ben for the first time oh, you last did? month. And yeah. Such a weird, neat guy. Oh my God, I know. He's amazing. He's like kind of quiet at first, and then you find the right thing for him yeah. to talk about, and he just like goes into it. I saw him talk in Montreal when I lived there, and he did, he did a reading, uh, which was, you know, he had these slides up and then he just sort of he t put his head down and he read from this sheet of paper in his kind of monotonous way and it was the most engaging like brilliant comics reading i've ever seen really? the way yeah the way his mind work is works is incredible where he's kind of interweaving like history and uh you know and then like his own personal history and fiction and it's unclear where any of these things kind of stop and start it's like I, you can see on, um, there's like a TED talk he did too where you can see some of them. There's this one story about the architecture of the lap that's just like, I mean, it's phenomenal. I don't know. They, he's a, I think he's a really unique, like brilliant person. He's such an amazing voice too. Yeah, amazing. It's just, yeah. No, I, I really want to interview him, but yeah. he doesn't really get to do it. That makes sense. He's, I think he's I sort of a, yeah. I think he's like, you know, old enough and has done enough things that he's sort of like, Nope, I found my thing that I like to do, and that's all I'd like to do. Yeah. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, well, thank you for taking the time to of course. meet with me, Jessica. Yeah. Enjoy your event tonight at Lucky's. Thanks. Vancouver folks can go back to Lucky's and pick up the books since yeah. this will be posted well after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love yeah. that it's the first wrapped Koyama book I think I've oh, I know, yeah. Well, yeah, you don't want that underwear to scratch off. No, um, it could be yeah. embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> like a brown paper bag. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Robin. Thank you. Thank you.